In terms of intellectual meditation, again, if one studies hashkofa in terms of intellectual meditation, if you become immersed in hashkofa, if you become mentally involved, totally mentally involved in the study of hashkofa, Jewish philosophy, or in the study of the internal design of creation, then you actually feel as if you live or reside on a different plane or dimension of being, a different plane of reality. You begin to interpret events in this world from the framework and standpoint of a spiritual reality and not merely from this physical world's perspective. You understand that shifts in world events reflect spiritual changes or necessities. They indicate changes in God's or the Rabbani Shalom's hashgoho or his interaction with the world in bringing creation to its intended state of shlemus giliuchudoi otikon akloli which is the intended state of creation. If you immerse yourself in Ashkofa, then you begin feeling as if you're part of another world. And you begin to feel as if you're a visitor in this world. Now, you may think that, well, why would anybody want to be in such a state? But the truth is that <clears throat> that is the real state that is the only state to be in. If one, is in, if one lives in the spiritual worlds, but has to sojourn in this physical world, if he travels to this physical world, that is exactly how a person should feel. Because then his entire attitude about the physical world is different. He understands that he will not put his energies or efforts into acquiring great material wealth or great material security more than necessary. But instead, <clears throat> since his focus is on another reality, he will endeavor or he'll preoccupy his time and his energies, of which he has very little of, with, of course, the necessities of the uh, spiritual worlds. And as I mentioned before, you can perceive many political events on the basis of what's really happening in the spiritual world. It's almost like somebody gives you different eyeglasses red eyeglasses and therefore you see everything red. It's the same idea. If you immerse yourself in the study of Hashkofa, what happens is that you have what's called Hashkofa eyeglasses, where everything is almost interpreted automatically via the fundamental principles of Hashkofa. When you begin to see political events, uh, for instance, uh, why there's a state of Israel, why the Zionists have the state of Israel first, why may Kahan exist, and so on and so forth. Uh, um, why America has achieved such great status among the world, and so on. Uh, what's happening in the political scene in many areas. Why the Arabs seem to be one day up, the other day down, and so on. If you're in the world of Ashkofa, then you perceive all these events automatically from the world of the spiritual dimensions. And a lot, of these, uh, a lot of the understanding of the physical world becomes uh, understandable or explainable. You also redirect the energies and efforts, as I said before, of your life toward the direction, toward the direction of achieving the main goal or objective. And that is that the spiritual world is the world that you really wind up in. That is the destination of all souls. They have to go through this world in order to get to that spiritual world. So living or being mentally involved in spiritual worlds aids you or helps you 
it keeps you on the course, the correct course which you should be uh, 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 embarking on throughout your life. That is one of the, uh, the benefits of studying Hashkofa with this kind of uh, intensity and so on. But it's true of all intense, all areas of Torah and, uh, and uh, study of God. The more intensely you become involved, the greater is your emotional state toward that area, and the greater you reorder your life's priorities toward the achievement of spiritual worlds, toward the achievement of ilm haba. <coughs> In any case, we see, therefore, that intellectual meditation is a way which is very practical and which we can all uh, um, uh, use or employ as a device to achieve many of the objectives that the contemplative state and meditative state would normally have achieved. That um, focused awareness or directed concentration or thinking for prolonged periods of time and for frequent periods of time will actually get us many of the goals and objectives of the regular contemplative and meditative states. Now, uh, before I conclude this area of meditation, the term in Hebrew for meditation is hispoididus. Now, the verb bodod or bodad means to be isolated, to be secluded, or to be alone. Hispoididus really is a term that conveys the concept of self-isolation or self-seclusion. In other words, it reflects or, in, or indicates the state of self-isolation. So, the reason why Hispoididus is called meditation is meditation itself is when the self is isolated or divorced from all sensory and bodily sensations. In other words, the self is isolated from the external physical world because there's no bodily sensations and no sensory sensations. <clears throat> and also, the self is isolated from all mental activities, such as thoughts, images, or feelings. In other words, it's isolated from the internal mental plane, or the mental world. Thus, the meditative state is essentially the self's isolation from external and internal experiences. Therefore, hispoididus, which means the state of isolation, also means meditation. So therefore, the Hebrew word for meditation is really hispoididus. Uh, I have tried to cover in a comprehensive fashion the area of meditation. And uh, now that we have an understanding of meditation, of what the meditative state, the contemplative state, what reflection and concentration is, what uh, the three various techniques of achieving the meditative state or contemplative state, and also ideas <coughs> about the objectives of meditation, also statements about the intellectual meditation. We now can go into the next area, which is Jewish meditation. And in that area, we will begin to discover exactly what does meditation have to do with Judaism? How does Judaism use meditation as a device to achieve the last objective of meditation, which I had mentioned? And that is, of course, the uh, attachment the uh, contact or communication, the perception of transcendental realms or worlds, and also spiritual entities, and also the ability to control uh, spiritual entities themselves towards one's own 
toward one's own desires. We will now focus in on that. Before I get into the concept or the area of Jewish meditation, I just wanted to uh, summarize very succinctly what we had covered previously. And those were some of the ideas of meditation, what that really is. Now, what we have discussed so far concerning the topic of meditation is that there are four levels of awareness. In other words, that there are basically or fundamentally four states of consciousness. And they were the following. The first one was called reflection. And that is when an individual has awareness of an object, rather lightly. He has awareness of an object, and besides the fact that he's aware of an object, he also has a lot of extraneous mental input, a lot of bodily sensations, um, um, sensory sensations, as well as mental activity taking place, uh, thoughts, images, or feelings. This is reflection, or the first level of awareness. It is the lowest level of awareness because besides the fact that you're not really focused in, you also have a lot of distractions that take away from the intensity of the focus of awareness. The second level of awareness, which I had talked about, was what's called concentration. Now, concentration already is higher level of awareness. It is focused awareness of an object, plus also the extraneous mental input. In other words, where the individual makes a mental effort to concentrate <coughs> on um, any uh, object or topic or subject or whatever, when he focuses awareness, but at the same time you have a lot of extraneous mental input, the same mental activities, same thoughts, images or feelings going on, and you also have different sensations, whether it be bodily or sensory, which continue to distract the person. But because the person is focused in on the object, the level of awareness or the state of consciousness is higher. The third level of awareness already takes a lot of effort to develop. That is what's called contemplation. And what that is, is that that is focused awareness of an object without any extraneous mental input. In other words, the individual focuses in on something, anything, any object or whatever, and at the same time is able to exclude or clear the mind of any extraneous mental input. There is no thoughts, images, or feelings. There's basically no sensations, either bodily or sensory. And because there are no distractions of, the, uh, of other mental input, the awareness itself is more intense. Not because he makes the awareness intense, but merely by removing distractions, the awareness itself becomes much more focused. That was contemplation. The last stage, or the last level of awareness, or the last or the highest state of consciousness and it is indeed the highest is where a person has what's called super focused awareness without any extraneous mental input in other words the individual removes all sensations bodily or sensory and all mental activities whether it be thoughts images or feelings he has none of these to distract him from his thinking or his awareness besides that he intensifies greatly the actual focus of awareness on any given object. In other words, that object, that single experience occupies the entire field of awareness that he has. And that takes a lot of mental effort, <clears throat> takes a lot of discipline, a lot of practice to achieve. These were basically the four mental states, or rather four levels of awareness, which I had discussed previously. Besides that, what we have also seen <clears throat> is also the reason 
or the underlying rationale for extraneous mental activity itself. Why is it that thoughts, images, and feelings many times enter the mind, and the person certainly does not want it, it distracts the person? These distract a person from focusing awareness on anything. I had explained basically the reason why, and that was that introduced the concept of the unconscious will. That meant that there is an area of ourselves whereby we are unaware of the motive, we are unaware of the, the decision itself, and we are unaware of the will, the, the actual desire to go and get or to actually produce mental productions. And that is really what uh, extraneous mental activities are all about. <clears throat> now, in addition, <clears throat> we had also discussed the three major techniques employed by people to develop the skill of achieving higher levels of, of awareness or greater or heightened states of consciousness. Namely, namely, concentration for a specific time period or duration on either a sound, a sight, or an image. These are basically the three major ways or major techniques for an individual to develop higher states of consciousness. There are others, but um, I'm not, this is not a sheer dealing comprehensively with meditation. The focus of the sheer really is Jewish meditation. But I am bringing down ideas and concepts of meditation, which is important to know for Jewish meditation. Now, after that, after the three major techniques were basically explained, we proceeded to list all the possible objectives that can be achieved through meditation. Or in other, or in other words, to use meditation as a method or device, as some kind of a technique or vehicle to achieve an intended and desired outcome. And we had listed 12 of them. In other words, there are 12 possible objectives that one can use the meditative device. And that's really what it is. It's a device to achieve some kind of a goal or objective. Um, and again, that was previously mentioned. In addition, besides that, we saw that one can also achieve a high level of awareness by a fourth method, which brings the ability to focus some, somewhere down to our level. And what, what that was is that by concentrating or focusing awareness and thinking of any material thing or any object or whatever, for a prolonged period of time, this was the first requirement, and at very frequent intervals, that was the second requirement, it is possible to achieve a state of, a, of consciousness or level of awareness uh, which approaches that of contemplation. In other words, um, this kind of a state would, would occupy or involve us in almost total mental involvement concerning that matter or thing. Now this level of awareness, as I had mentioned, would actually enable us to approach that of contemplation, even though extraneous mental input is still present in the mind. This fourth technique of achieving, a, of achieving a heightened state of consciousness was called intellectual meditation. And that is something which is more accessible to most people. Merely by concentrating for prolonged periods of time at frequent intervals itself will enable a person to focus far greater on the object of his focus. 
uh, even if he doesn't, if he's not able to exclude the extraneous mental input, which tend to distract. This was basically the uh, fourth method of achieving a heightened state of consciousness, and this is basically what I had covered previously. We now come to the topical area called Jewish meditation. What is Jewish meditation? Is there such a thing as Jewish meditation? The answer is that there really is, but it's not what people think it is. I'm going to give you a definition of Jewish meditation, so we'll understand what it is and what it is not. What Jewish meditation is, is the employment of the meditative method or device to achieve specific spiritual phenomena for that person. That's what it is. It is not, and I underline not, a different kind of meditative technique. It is not a different kind of meditative state that has been discussed previously. It's the same meditative state, meditative techniques. It uses the same meditative techniques to achieve the same meditative state, which of course is super focused awareness without any extraneous mental input at all, but it uses it for unique spiritual objectives or outcomes. In other words, there is no difference between meditation in Judaism and meditation in any other Eastern meditative discipline as yoga or whatever. The technique is the same, in other words, the techniques for acquiring the development of that skill of being able to focus awareness is exactly the same. And the meditative state, that state of enhanced or heightened state of awareness, uh, that state where a person focuses in on a single experience exclusively to the total exclusion of anything else, that meditative state is the same for Judaism as it is for any other discipline. The difference in Judaism is that Judaism uses this meditative technique or device to achieve certain spiritual outcomes, certain spiritual phenomena which is unique to Judaism. Yoga is very different. Yoga uses meditative device the exact same device as used by Judaism, but not to achieve spiritual uh, phenomena, even though they think they do. What yoga uses it is to achieve realization of self, where self becomes aware of self, and as they want to say, where self believes that it is part of universal consciousness, which they identify as God. That is an error, which I will explain as I go on through the, uh, through the shear. But this is what yoga uses it for. They use the meditative device in order to achieve, achieve liberation of self. Where self actually comes in contact with self, or as they would say it, self knows self through self. In any case, this is what they feel that they want to achieve because they believe that when self has achieved that level, self then is aware of the fact that it is identical with God. This is what they believe. They call God cosmic consciousness or whatever, but that's really what it is. So therefore, yoga also uses the meditative device to achieve a certain state, and that is a state of realization of who self is. Judaism does not use it at all for that, for many reasons, which I will get into when I talk purely about yoga. And there will be an entire 
sheer devoted just to yoga itself. In any case, <clears throat> what Judaism uses in meditation or the meditative device is to achieve spiritual phenomena, a kind of spiritual experience. In order, or rather, we see therefore that Jewish meditation is regular meditation used for specific Jewish objectives, namely the attainment of certain spiritual experiences or spiritual phenomena. That is what Jewish meditation is. It is meditation <coughs> used to achieve Jewish goals. That's why it's called Jewish meditation. Now, in order to achieve these spiritual phenomena, the object of awareness in meditation is therefore very different from the object normally used in regular meditation sessions. The object of focus or the object of directed awareness or the object of meditation itself is distinctly Jewish in nature as we shall see. <clears throat> in other words, that which a person focuses on when he is engaged in Jewish meditation is very different from what a yogi is focused on when he engages in yogic meditation. And that's really what it's called, yogic meditation, because they are engaged in meditation to achieve yogic ends. And the word yoga basically means union, which of course means union or realization that self is unionized or actually one and part of God. But in any case, the, uh, when a person engages in Jewish meditation, what he's really doing is using something which he focuses on, which is distinctly Jewish, as we shall, as we shall see. Now, <laughs> when we talk about Jewish meditation, where does Juda Jewish meditation come out of in Judaism? The truth is that Judaism is really, or rather Jewish meditation, comes out of the discipline or the doctrine of what's called Kabbalah. What is Kabbalah basically? What Kabbalah is, it is the Judaism's understanding of the internal design of creation. In other words, when God gave Moshe Rabbeinu the Torah, he gave three parts. He gave him a written law, Tereshavik Sav. He gave him an oral law, Tereshavik Peh. And he gave them a second division of the oral law, which is the principles by which the universe is governed. Especially the mechanism of the universe. In other words, when God wants to interact with the world, what's the mechanistic device that is employed by the Rabbani Shalom to govern the universe? And that's the way God created the universe, with certain mechanistic devices. Uh, Kabbalah is that third section which was given to Moshe on Mount Sinai, and this was communicated or transmitted from generation to generation. Now, part of the ideas of this third division of Torah, which is called Kabbalah, part of this involves what's called practical Kabbalah. And I'm going to now discuss that. Kabbalah, which is the third aspect of Torah, which was given to Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses at Mount Sinai. Kabbalah is basically divided into two major divisions in terms of its utility or usefulness to an individual. The first area or division of Kabbalah is called theoretical Kabbalah. What is theoretical Kabbalah? And I will offer a definition. Theoretical Kabbalah is the study of the mechanism of creation. 
its components, the structure of those components, the function of those components, and the progression of those components. In other words, how has this mechanism actually been used throughout the history of creation? This is what theoretical Kabbalah really is. Because of that, you find many different terms, which I'll just mention and certainly not go into. You find terms uh, in theoretical Kabbalah, for instance, as what's called spheros or emanations, partsufim, which is configurations of, an em of emanations. You have many different, uh, well, worlds, which we had previously discussed to a certain extent. You have the concepts of Adam Kadmoin, which is uh, antecedent or primeval man or whatever. There are many ideas which are in theoretical Kabbalah, and what these things really are is metaphorical language to describe certain ideas, certain mechanisms that determine how creation runs. So in other words, the study of the internal design of creation was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, and this is what's called theoretical Kabbalah. The second major division of Kabbalah is called practical Kabbalah. What is practical Kabbalah? <clears throat> practical Kabbalah <clears throat> is the utilization or the employment of specific Kabbalistic instruments or Kabbalistic knowledge toward achieving specific practical objectives or outcomes which may or may not be spiritual, which may or may not be the spiritual enhancement of the individual using those uh, uh, those Kabbalistic instrument or Kabbalistic knowledge. In other words, when one uses or utilizes the knowledge of Kabbalah or Kabbalistic instruments, which I will be getting into later, toward some kind of an objective, that is what's called a practical Kabbalah. It does not necessarily mean that a person is interested in achieving some kind of spiritual growth or spiritual advancement. Hopefully it does, but it does not have to be that way. Now, the employment of the meditative device with regards to certain Kabbalistic instruments used as the object of awareness during meditation in order to achieve certain spiritual phenomena is called meditative Kabbalah and is one of the major subdivisions of the overall division of practical Kabbalah. What is meditative Kabbalah? As I said, when you use certain Kabbalistic ideas or instruments, when you use that as the focus of awareness during the act of meditation, in order to achieve certain spiritual phenomena, that is called meditative Kabbalah. In other words, you are using Kabbalah, or the Kabbalistic knowledge, you are meditating on certain aspects of it, you are achieving certain spiritual dimensions, spiritual phenomena, or spiritual experiences, and this is called meditative Kabbalah, because you are using Kabbalah via the meditative device. This is one of the forms of practical Kabbalah. That's what meditative Kabbalah is. There are many other forms of, med of, of practical Kabbalah. In other words, there are many other ways of using the knowledge of Kabbalah or Kabbalistic instruments in order to achieve different objectives or spiritual phenomena besides the meditative device. 
but we won't discuss them here or now. What we will dwell on is the area of meditative Kabbalah. Now, meditative Kabbalah is really Jewish meditation because when you meditate on something Jewish in order to, or some Jewish concept or idea to achieve certain spiritual dimensions, that's what Jewish meditation is. Meditative Kabbalah is the same thing. When you use certain Kabbalistic ideas and you use them via meditation in order to achieve <clears throat> spiritual phenomena, that's what meditative Kabbalah is. Well, you will see that it's exact same definition. Jewish meditation is an easier term than meditative Kabbalah. It sounds nicer, doesn't sound as threatening, uh, it's probably more palatable to most people. But if you want to be honest with yourself, Jewish meditation is really meditative Kabbalah. Um, there are certain dimensions of Jewish meditation which probably are beyond meditative Kabbalah, especially in terms of what you can do with it today. And as part of the sheer on Jewish meditation or meditative Kabbalah, I will be going into certain of the things that you can do today with uh, meditation using um, Kabbalistic instruments. But uh, in any case, Jewish meditation. So therefore, that is what uh, Jewish meditation is and meditative Kabbalah, same thing. In other words, when one uses the meditative method or technique or device, by focusing in on specific Jewish instruments, concepts or ideas, in order to achieve certain spiritual phenomena, then he is engaged in Jewish meditation or uh, meditative Kabbalah. If he is using other instruments, then he's not engaged in meditative Kabbalah. It's that simple. He's merely engaged in meditation. That's basically what Jewish meditation is. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> when one meditates using specific Kabbalistic instruments, which I will explain later, when one meditates using these Kabbalistic ideas as the object of focus awareness, when that is what you are focusing in on while you are meditating, and assuming that certain definite prerequisite conditions have been met prior to your meditating, in other words, you have to have fulfilled certain conditions before you begin meditating. Now, so therefore, if you meditate, on Kabbalistic instruments, assuming certain prerequisite conditions have been met, then there are four kinds of spiritual phenomena, four kinds or types <coughs> of uh, transcendental experiences that can be achieved for the individual meditating, for the meditator. All four experiences are true spiritual experiences. And I really mean true spiritual experiences involving, and this is what makes them true, the interface between the meditator and spiritual entities or between the meditator and transcendental worlds or realms or universes or planes or dimensions, whatever you want to call them. It can actually enable the meditator to interface or to interact with either spiritual beings or entities, 
and also transcendental or spiritual or supernal worlds. That is why it's a true spiritual experience, not a physical experience. Now, the first two spiritual phenomena, which I will mention, you should know are necessities for true spiritual growth and was achieved by millions of Jews. may sound odd. How can something have been achieved by millions of Jews and not even recognized by mainstream Judaism today? Well, that is probably part of the Hester. But the truth is that the meditative Kabbalah was extensively used by many Jews thousands of years ago. And millions of Jews had employed meditative device for uh, spiritual advancement and spiritual growth. So the first two spiritual experiences are really necessary. You must use them if you really want to grow spiritually. Not only that, but the Rabbani Shalom, God, wants Jews to use these meditative devices to achieve spiritual growth. That's why he gave them in the first place. It wasn't a luxury, it was a necessity. And therefore, millions of Jews took advantage of that, of that, uh, that experience. These are the first two spiritual phenomena. The third spiritual phenomena, which I will mention, and which is an outcome of the meditative device on certain Kabbalistic instruments, this third spiritual experience can be employed only under certain conditions and is engaged in very sparingly. You have to be very cautious and careful. Not every time can you do it, and only under certain, uh, in certain circumstances or times can one actually engage in this aspect or, this, or, uh, or achieve this spiritual phenomena. The fourth spiritual phenomena is completely forbidden for anyone to engage in, and I really mean forbidden. Why? Because if somebody transgressed and achieved the fourth phenomena, which is possible to achieve, it is possible to actually accomplish the spiritual phenomena, which is this fourth phenomena, it meant that that person would, of a certainty, be annihilated. Not because of the transgression per se, but because of the phenomena that he had achieved. That's how bad it is. And now, what are these phenomena? What are these spiritual phenomena of which I am referring to? You're probably all waiting with it for bated breath. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the first phenomena, which is a necessity for spiritual growth, is called Ruach HaKodesh which translated really means the Holy Spirit or divine inspiration. It is possible to achieve Ruach HaKodesh or divine inspiration or to become attached to a true spiritual entity and that means that you have what's called the Holy Spirit or Ruach HaKodesh. The next phenomenon which is even greater than Ruach HaKodesh which is actually the greatest spiritual phenomena and I mean greatest, without any reservations, that can ever be achieved by an individual while he is attached to his physical body is called nevuah or prophecy. That is the greatest spiritual phenomena. And most people have a misunderstanding of what prophecy is. 
Prophecy, I'll mention again much more, uh, much more in detail later, but just as an aside now, prophecy has very little to do with prophets. In other words, do not think that a person would try to become a prophet in order that he should deliver messages, messages to, to the nation of Israel, the tribe of Israel. That had very little to do with prophecy. Prophecy, in essence, was a vehicle for enormous spiritual growth. There are prophets or individuals who had attained the level of spiritual, spirituality, which we call prophecy, which God used to deliver certain messages or revelations. So he used a certain number of them, 40, 30, whatever they are. But the essence of prophecy has nothing to do with what we think prophets are. And that is individuals who deliver divine messages, divine exhortations or whatever. Prophecy is used primarily and essentially and fundamentally to achieve an enormous spiritual growth. And it is the greatest level that a person can achieve while he's alive, which means while he is still in the physical body. These first two phenomena are necessary for spiritual growth. He who achieved them had achieved enormous spirituality, which is not describable in, in, in certainly within our terms, because we, we lack the prophetic experience, so we don't know what it means. But when I talk about prophecy next week, you can get some kind of a glimpse of what the prophet experienced or whoever achieved prophecy. These were necessary, both Ruach HaKadosh and Nevoah, for spiritual growth. The third spiritual phenomena, which is not necessary and can only be used under certain conditions, is called white magic, for a better term. It's what I call in Hebrew, Shinoi Teva, to alter the natural law, to alter physical law. That is a third objective that can be achieved by an individual who meditates on certain Kabbalistic instruments. White magic, and it's called white magic as opposed to black magic because you employed spiritual entities that were not evil but were good in order to use or to do what you wanted. If you employed evil entities, then you were into the fourth spiritual phenomena called Kishuf, which is sorcery or black magic. Now, sorcery or black magic means that you had to engage with, with certain evil beings. Again, you did it via meditation on certain Kabbalistic instruments. And what you did is you allied yourself to these individuals and uh, what it meant ultimately is your demise and your annihilation. Because once they, once they become part of you, you can't shake them, basically. And uh, that is something which nobody is allowed to engage in. One can know about it, but you cannot engage in it. It is called black magic because it is magic. Magic simply means the alteration of natural law. It is called black magic because you used, because you used spiritual being, beings that were black. And what black means is that they were evil in their nature. And for those who do not know what the definition of evil is, the definition of evil is, and believe me, it's not that easy to, to define. The definition, definition of evil is 
the negation or absence of being. That is what evil is. It's a privation of being. Good means the enhancement or the promotion of being. Evil people negate or destroy or annihilate. They try to negate being. Good people try to enhance, promote being. So spiritual entities that were evil were constantly out to, um, to destroy or to uh, detract from being. In any case, these are the four spiritual phenomena that can be achieved by meditation on certain Kabbalistic instruments. This is what Jewish meditation is all about. It is meditation used specifically to uh, realize one of these four objectives. In order to clearly understand the area of meditative Kabbalah, or Jewish meditation, we will divide the attainment or the sequence of any given spiritual phenomena into four parts. In other words, there are basically four elements that I want to talk about, and that will make it much easier to understand. In other words, if you wanted to engage in the attainment of prophecy, then we will talk about four elements. It is the same elements we will talk about if you want to engage in the attainment of Ruach HaKodesh, or divine inspiration. And the same thing goes for white magic and black magic. Shinuteva or Kishuf. What are these four elements that I'm going to discuss? Well, the first area is called the mechanism or the procedure. What exactly is the procedure or the mechanism that somebody engages in in order to achieve these spiritual phenomena or these spiritual outcomes? <clears throat> the second element of the sequence is what's called the result of the mechanism, the results of the procedure. What happens as a result of implementing this procedure or mechanism? What is the immediate effect? That's the second area I want to talk about. The third area I want to talk about is what's called the ultimate mechanistic consequences. In other words, what were the ultimate or the desired objectives that were achieved by the actual implementation of the procedure? And the fourth area, or the fourth element that I want to talk about in the sequence, when one uh, uh, is involved in attaining a spiritual phenomena, any one of the four, is <clears throat> what are the conditions that have to be met in order for the objectives to be realized? Now, there are two sets of conditions. There is what's called prerequisite conditions. In other words, conditions that must exist or be met or be fulfilled before you begin meditating, before the procedure is initiated. And the second kind of conditions is what's called procedural conditions, or conditions that must be met or fulfilled during the ongoing mechanism implementation. While you are actually trying out the procedure, you have to observe certain conditions. <coughs> These are the four areas that I am going to talk about in talking about how, do one, how does one attain, uh, basically, one of these four spiritual phenomena? Now, also I want to mention that besides the four spiritual phenomena which one can achieve, there is a fifth phenomena which I will also talk about, 
And that is what's called prophetic dreams, which is not the same as the four previous spiritual phenomena because one does not use a meditative device in order to do it. It is something which happens spontaneously, but it is still important to know because it does happen to different people. And one should know how to distinguish between a prophetic dream and a normal dream. But there are certain things called prophetic dreams and, uh, or chaloimus, which are uh, prophetic. And um, I will be talking about exactly what those are and how they differ from the other spiritual phenomena. So uh, in all, we'll be talking about five phenomena which are spiritual, and that should give you a pretty comprehensive grasp of what can be achieved by Jewish meditation. Now, I just wanted to mention, which I had mentioned uh, just previously, that it is very difficult to achieve the first two spiritual phenomena, divine inspiration and n prophecy. It is much easier to achieve the last two, which is um, um, uh, alteration of natural law, white magic and also black magic. Uh, and in terms of prophetic dreams, uh, it's not a matter of being easy or hard, it, it either happens or it does not happen. Uh, and that's basically uh, what I'm going to be talking about. Now, let us begin our understanding of what Jewish meditation is, or how does one really uh, understand the attainment of these four spiritual phenomena. In order to do that, you have to know certain prerequisite information. The self which is the nefesh elyoyna, which is the highest soul of man, is bound to the physical world. It's linked to the physical world. How? Via the nefesh tachtoyna, or the lower soul, which I had mentioned previously, and that the lower soul is the mind, which is also physical, but the self is bound to the uh, mind, in other words, the self resides in the mind, and the mind itself is connected to the physical body, the guf. In other words, the self or the nefesh elyoyna is bound to the physical world via the nefesh tachtoyna, which is the mind, which is the lower soul, which is physical, and this itself is bound or linked or connected to the physical body, the guf. Therefore, it cannot rise above or overcome this physical world since it is connected and bound to it. It cannot overcome the physical environment in which it finds itself. Why not? By divine decree. The Rabbani Shalom, God, does not permit it to leave its abode, its physical abode. It cannot overcome either physical law or physical limitations since it is bound to the physical universe. Therefore, the self perceives only the physical world and it perceives the physical world only via its five senses. There are two fundamental physical limitations that are imposed on the self as a result of the fact that the self is bound to the physical universe. <clears throat> the first one is, is that the self does not perceive its true spiritual nature, nefesh elyoyna. It doesn't see who it is. Nobody here knows who they are. All of you think that you are an entity that is basically physical, which is a gross error. 
The self does not perceive its true spiritual nature, nature that it is a nefesh elyoyna, a higher soul, because of the physical limitation imposed by the fact that it's connected to the physical world. Not only does it not perceive its true spiritual nature, but it does not perceive the transcendental or spiritual worlds that it is really a part of and should normally be aware of. <coughs> As I had mentioned previously, <coughs> the nefesh elyoyna or the self actually is stretched out into all the worlds, the transcendental worlds. Therefore, it should be able to perceive any part of these worlds naturally, but it cannot. That is part of the physical limitation. It does not experience any attachment to any spiritual entity of these worlds, nor can it communicate to any of these entities either. That is the first physical limitation that the self has as a result of the fact that it is bound to the physical body. The second physical limitation is that the self, the nefesh elyoyna, or the higher soul, possesses every mental faculty independent of any physical body. In other words, if you took the self out of the body and it would be a pure spiritual being or entity, it would automatically, innately, by its own essence, be able to reason, memory, have imagination, have will, have awareness. Automatically, it does not need a physical body at all. Not only that, but it also innately or independently of any physical body has all of the five senses. Certainly the senses where it's able to contact the external world or to be aware of external reality. It doesn't need the physical body. It has these faculties, whether it be mental faculties or sensory faculties, innately and part of its spiritual nature or essence. But, by divine decree, it can only utilize these faculties via the nefesh tachtoina or the mind. In other words, it can only employ these faculties via the, the actual mind itself. These faculties of the self, or nefesh elyoyna, can only be expressed through the physical organ called the brain in which the mind resides. Therefore, that leaves us with a very important uh, idea that the expression of the faculties of the self via the mind is limited by the quality of that particular brain it resides in. In other words, if the brain that the self resides in has the capacity for genius and its physical neurons that determine this, there is a difference physically between a genius and somebody who's not a genius. There's, so, there's somehow the mind has different capacities or different neuronal structures or whatever. But if the self resides in a brain that has a capacity for genius, then the self can express its own faculty in a superlative fashion, exactly in accordance with the amount that the physical brain allows it. If the brain is damaged or physically deficient, for instance, if, the child, if a child is born retarded or a person has uh, uh, organic brain syndrome or, or whatever, and uh, in other words, if, if the brain is physically deficient in terms of neuron structure, or it's damaged or whatever, then the self can exhibit only a fraction of its normal capacity that it has innately. It must and it can only use the faculty in exact accordance 
with the physical capacities of the residence of the brain that it resides into, in. It can't do any more than that. Again, that is by divine decree. In other words, not only is this true by mental faculties, but also by the sensory faculties. If the eyes of an individual are damaged, then the self is blind even though it innately can see independent of the eyes of the brain. If something else is damaged hearing, then it can't hear. It is locked into the mind, which is locked into the brain, which is locked into the body. There's nothing it can do. It must use the faculties of mind in order to express its own faculties. If the faculties of brain are limited, then self's expression of its own faculties, whether it be mental or sensory, are also limited. If the faculties of brain, the physical faculties or capacities of brain or mind, is superlative, then self's faculties can be expressed in a superlative fashion. Again, this is all by divine decree. Obviously then, self is enormously limited in terms of recognizing who it is. Self, therefore, is severely curtailed by the physical world, by the physical body, and by the physical mind that it is connected to. Is man lost? Is the self lost? No, not by any means. What the Rabbi Nishlam did, what God did, is that he provided a mechanism whereby self can attain a true spiritual experience, and that includes four ideas. One, that he can perceive spiritual entities and spiritual worlds. Two, that he can become attached to spiritual entities and spiritual worlds. Three, that he can communicate with spiritual entities and, or, or, of spiritual worlds. And that he can control or manipulate spiritual entities. He can attain a true spiritual experience of any of these areas, even while the self is completely bound to the physical world and the body, and also to the physical uh, mind, and thus should normally be limited by the physical and natural law. In other words, even though a person is bound to the physical world, body and mind, he can actually transcend not the body because he remains connected. You can't do that. But it does make a difference. It is possible via a mechanism that the self becomes aware of a different realm that it exists on itself. Because we know that the self exists simultaneously in the other four worlds besides this physical world except what has been taken away from the self is its own awareness of its complete existential dimensions that it exists in. Self, via certain mechanisms, can actually lift the veil on the different existential planes that it is connected to. And this is via a mechanism that was given by the Rabbi Shalom to mankind. And, um, this is what is meant, of course, by these spiritual phenomena. Thus, the physical limitations and laws is not absolute, it's not unchanging, but it, it is actually able to be suspended by the self if it engages in the correct procedure or the correct mechanism. 
This suspension can occur even though the self is connected to the physical world and therefore normally should be restricted by the physical laws and by the physical limitations. To restate this idea, a mechanism exists whereby self, who is you, sometimes we forget who self is, a mechanism exists whereby you can suspend physical law and limitations which are normally imposed upon it since it remains attached to its physical garb which is the physical mind, physical body and physical world or the environment and actually experience various spiritual phenomena normally impossible to achieve. This mechanism provides the interface between the self, the person, while he's attached to the physical world and the supernal spiritual worlds and entities. The Rabbani Shalom gave man the ability in order to achieve this for certain reasons. One of the reasons is that God wants man to grow spiritually and true spiritual growth can only be achieved via these mechanisms. It's actually a necessity. Why it is not used today, what happened to these devices, I will talk about after the lecture on yoga when I get into the history of meditation, the history of Kabbalah, or really the history to all these ideas that disappeared. And we'll be examining that history from the perspective of the internal design of creation, not from a normal descriptive historical standpoint. But in any case, we'll see why it happened and if it will ever return. But in any case, the Rabbanisham gave a person this ability, this mechanism, so he can achieve an enormous spiritual growth and thereby be able to correct or rectify creation even better. The second idea is that the Rabbanisham sort of like wants man to achieve the culmination of his endeavors even while he is still attached to the physical world. It's almost like you worked so strenuously to know who God is, to know what exists beyond this dimension, here it is. It's almost that way. In other words, a person can achieve that before the, the onset of the Messianic period, when all Jews will be prophets. Probably non-Jews to a certain extent, depending on how good their actions are. But all Jews at that time will be prophets because prophecy or this kind of state of awareness of spiritual worlds will be restored to mankind. And um, a great deal of mankind will have it. As I mentioned, even non-Jews, but it will go in certain different directions. But it will be, it'll be a phenomenon which will be restored to men. And uh, I'll talk about this uh, you know, at a later time. Now, <clears throat> I previously mentioned that there are four elements to the sequence of the attainment of sp specific spiritual phenomena or experience. The first one was meditation or the procedure. That was the first idea, the area, the element. The second was the results or the immediate effect of this mechanism, of this procedure. The third <clears throat> was what are the consequences or the outcomes or the objectives of this mechanism or procedure. And the fourth element in the sequence is what are the conditions to be met before and during the implementation of the mechanism or the procedure.
What I want to do now is to study the results of the immediate effect first, which is the second element. Then I will go back and present the mechanism, which is the first element. And then I will go to go into the objectives or the spiritual phenomena and then the conditions. It's much easier to understand it this way. <clears throat> Now, I will now introduce certain ideas, <clears throat> very, very fundamental, <clears throat> and they will begin your entrance, <clears throat> really, into the world of Jewish meditation. <clears throat> all creation is the result of the acts of God, and when I say all, I really mean all. What is meant by creation? <clears throat> by creation is meant the initial bringing into existence or into being of the universes and its continued, continued or continuous maintenance of being or existence. That's what creation means, to bring into being and to maintain the, the, uh, uh, maintain the being of that entity. <clears throat> the Rabbani Shalom, God, is the doer or the subject of the action and creation both its inception and its maintenance is the results or the effects or the outcomes of the actions <clears throat> in other words God is the subject that acts that exhibits action and results or effects, effects ensue which leads me to this question. How does God act? How does He actually do what He wants to get done? What is His instrument, His mechanism for action? Now, in human beings, in man, we know what this is. The mechanism of how we do things is the hands. In other words, if I want to do something, I move my hand and it gets done. The hand is my instrument, it is my visible it is my um, vehicle, it is my mechanism, which I employ in order to do things for myself. Now, <clears throat> this mechanism, the, hand, the hands, are obvious to all. It's perceived by all. But the question is, what is God's mechanism? What are the hands of God? When God wants to do something, He is a subject. He wants to get something done. What's the in-between? How does He do it? <clears throat> The answer is, of course, that it is unknown how he does it. God acts through an invisible mechanism which is not perceived by any entity outside of God. We do not know how God does what he wants to do. All we know is that all of a sudden things get done. Things pop into the air, events happen, <clears throat> things get created or annihilated or whatever. And we know that God is doing it, but we don't know how He does it. It is unknown. The mechanism for action by God, by the Rabbani Shalom, <clears throat> in truth is really the link between God, who is the subject of the action, and the effect which is creation itself. In other words, the link between God and creation is really His mechanism. You have God, who is the subject, you have the effect, which is creation, and you've got this in-between area. 
How does God do what He wants to do? Obviously, that is the link between this creation and the being that brings it into being. <clears throat> the mechanism of God's action is as mysterious and as incomprehensible as God Himself. That is very important to know that not only can we not know who God is, we cannot know what His link is because He is identical with His mechanism. Now, <clears throat> but how do we describe the actions of God itself in our own framework from our limited perspective? How do we talk about this? We, take, we cannot really talk about His mechanism because that's invisible. But we have to use some form of expression when we want to say God acts. What do we say? How do we describe it? Well, the truth is that there are various ways. The first way we say when God wants to act is we say God acts. That's the first way we express it. In other words, he, he acts via an invisible mechanism. That's the simple way of saying it. The second way we say it is that God causes to be, He causes to occur or happen. Again, it's basically the recognition that God performs an action, but it doesn't state anything more than the verb itself. <clears throat> the third way is by employing a metaphor. <clears throat> what is that metaphor? We say that God is mayor and or God shines forth a light. Now, that is a metaphor. We say that when God acts, God sends forth a light. And you'll find that terminology, that metaphor used many times in uh, Jewish literature or Kabbalistic literature. That God sends forth a light. God emanates a light. What does the light mean? Well, the light really is a metaphor. Why? Because what is light? Light is an invisible mechanism that causes one to see. I see you. But why do I see you? Because of light waves. But light waves are invisible. So therefore, light is really an invisible mechanism that enables me to see, to have sight. Therefore, light symbolizes or can be used as a metaphor to represent or to describe the, an invisible mechanism which is sent forth by God to achieve His desired effects. So when it said God sends forth a light, what that means is the same thing as saying He sends forth the invisible mechanism that we do not know what it is. But light is being used here as a metaphor. That's the third way. The fourth way is more technical and it's much more accurate. And it's really necessary to know. The fourth way is we say that God is mashpia e hashpor, which means that God influences an influence. That's what hashpor means, an influence. Now what does that mean? It means the following. God sends forth from outside of himself. He issues what's called an influence or a force that is a that can cause that can influence he issues forth a causative entity in other words it's a thing an entity that actually can cause other entities in other words he sends forth a force that has causative abilities it can achieve effects that's what it means that god is mashpia ashpo god sends forth an influence ashpo 
an entity, a force that itself can cause. Now, but the difficulty is, is that this idea of hashpor, that this causative entity, this uh, this uh, influence itself is a nivra, is a created concept, and therefore. If it's created, it obviously itself needs an invis the invisible mechanism of God to create it. So we're back to square one. What is the invisible mechanism that God uses to effect what he wants to do? The truth is that we cannot go beyond the hashpah. God created a causative entity, a real entity that actually can cause in God's stead. But of course God created that itself. But we cannot talk about God nor His real mechanism. We can only talk about the mechanism which is the causative entity which is responsible for creation itself. Got it? In other words, what created the universe is the hashpah, the creative or causative entity itself. What created the causative entity is God and his invisible mechanism. But we cannot talk about God and his invisible mechanism. We can only talk about a causative entity which is an emanation or it's an influence from God himself that has causative capacities or abilities. In other words, the causative mechanism of God himself is identical with God and therefore is, it is un, ultimately unknowable and incomprehensible. We can only speak about the nivra, the created entity called either a light, or rather called the hashpah of God, to describe his means of bringing about any effect he decides to be, desires to be. Therefore, we now can talk about God's hashpahs, God's causative entity or entities. These things which God created, which can actually give rise to effects after them. But we cannot talk about God or His connection or link to reality. We have no idea what that means. And um, just as an aside, I had once mentioned that God does not have existence, right? God is existence, which is a very fundamental difference. God is not included in reality. God is not one of the things that is. God determines what reality is because He is existence per se. In other words, if you saw pure existence without an essence, it would be God. So therefore, in some way, since God is being, is identical with the idea of being itself, then he can obviously make be whatever he wants to be. In other words, he determines what is. He doesn't take orders from anything else. So in some way, existence is able to uh, vary itself, to vibrate itself in some invisible way, and actually give rise to different kinds of existences. That is probably the only way we can grasp that idea. But the immediate way we have to talk about it is the concept of hashpos, that there is a causative entity that God created, which is the cause of creation. Okay? Once we understand that, we can now really proceed. 
Now, the total... Now, you may ask, how many hashpos are there of God? In other words, how many causative agents in that sense, or how many influences did God issue or invoke? And the answer to that is that the total number of variations of creation really equals the total number of hashpos which were issued or performed or implemented by God. The total amount of created entities equals the amount of hashpos which was issued by the Rabbani Shalom. <clears throat> now, there are two kinds of hashpos or acts of God. There are two general types or divisions of causative entities or forces issued by God, by the Rabbani Shalom, that can be distinguished based upon the effects that they do. The first hashpo is that God created his kavod, his glory, or his shechina. In other words, God created a manifestation or representation of himself that is perceived by his creations. God cannot be perceived by his creations in any way. So what the Rebbeinu did is he created the shechina, which is the Hebrew term for the Divine Presence. And the Hebrew word Shechina really means, Shechein means to dwell or to reside among. The Shechina is the presence of God that can dwell among man, that can be perceived by man. It is a created entity that man perceives that is the closest thing to God himself. And when we perceive his Shechina, his divine presence, we perceive God. We cannot perceive God himself. Because to know God is to be God. And therefore, if you are not God, you do not know God. Therefore, what we perceive is His Shechina, His divine presence, which is the closest manifestation or representation of God that can be perceived by created entities. Another word for Shechina also is His Kavod or His glory. When it says, Kavodi, my glory, Kavodi or my glory means my being. The emanation of what is called my being is called his covid or his glory. Glory is a emanation of the being in itself. When you say glory of the king, it doesn't mean the king. In some way it means the being of the king emanates a certain state, a certain reflection of his essence. You see the glory of the king. The same idea is used for God. When we say God's glory, what we mean is the glory or the manifestation that can be perceived by man that in some way represents God himself. But it is the only thing that we really can perceive. So therefore, the first hashpo <clears throat> that we can distinguish is the hashpo that created the covered or glory of God or the shechin or the divine presence of God himself. The second hashpo, or the group of causative acts, is what's called creation and the maintenance of that creation, which really comprises the spiritual universe with all its beings and the physical universe with all its beings. So therefore, there are two distinct divisions of hashpos, causative entities. 
One is hashpos, which create the being, or rather the manifestation of God as he appears to us, which is a shekhinah or is covered. The second hashpos, or hashpos, the group of hashpos, create all creation, whether it be spiritual worlds with their beings, physical worlds with their beings. That's the second area of hashpos. <clears throat> We now come into a very crucial area. Every hashpah, every act or causative entity that God creates, every hashpah that was, is, and will be issued by God has a name. It really has a name. This name, which is assigned to it, or designates the hashpah is how we can refer to the hashpah. Every hashpah has a name which is designated or assigned to it. And if you want to refer to the hashpah, you've got to call it by its name. Now, the name is not really the name for that particular hashpah, but really it's a name, it's a shem, shem is the Hebrew word for name, it is really the Shem or the name of God as regards to his performance or issuance of that particular Hashpah. That's what the name really is. When you say a name, for instance, when you say the name Erech that God is long-suffering, which means God is patient, what that means is that long-suffering refers to God in the insofar as the fact that he issues a causative entity that enables the phenomena of long suffering to exist and that is how we perceive it see the way it goes mm -hmm. god is not long suffering essentially god creates a hashpah an entity that gives rise to long suffering acts or patient acts so we, on this end of it, say God is long-suffering. That is the way it works. The name is not the name of the uh, particular Shpoh, but it is the name of God as, he, as regards his performance of the issuance of that particular Shpoh. Therefore, it's obvious that God has a different name for every Shpoh that he issues, whether it be past, present or future. <clears throat> it comes out therefore that the total names of God then equals every type of Ashpah issued by God, which also equals the total number of creations made. It's an exact equality. The total names of God equals the total names of Hashpos, which equals the total amount of created entities. Whether the created entity be an object, whether it be an abstract concept, whether it be an event, a possibility, all these different things are really created entities. <clears throat> One is equal to the other. God has the same amount of names as the amount of created entities, as the amount of hashpos, which he did, is, or will do. That's how many names God has. Now, the 72-letter name of God we now can understand what it means, refers to God as He is Mashpia, the Shekhinah itself. You see, in other words, when God sends a causative entity 
that creates his divine presence, the name for that is a 72-letter name of God. That is the name of God as he is mashpia, the Shekhinah, or the divine presence. In other words, as regards to the idea that he is creating his own divine presence, which will be perceived by man, the name for that, or the name for him, when he's doing that act, is a 72-letter name of God. Now, it thus designates, or the 72-letter name of God designates, the kovoid, or the glory of God, or the Shekhinah itself, the divine presence. <coughs> it is therefore, since it refers to God's creating his own divine presence, it is the holiest and most powerful name of all. Now, holiest we can understand, but what does it mean by the most powerful? That we'll see. But that's what it is. This 72-letter name of God was uttered by the Kohen Gadol, by the high priest, on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, during the Avodah service, during the actual service in the temple, during the Avodah service of that day in the Beis HaMikdash, in the temple. Now, I'll give an example. The Shem, the name of Rachum, when we say Rachum, what are we referring to? The name of Rachum, or the Shem of Rachum, which means, uh, which I'll, I'll say in a minute what it means, designates or refers to God as he sends forth a hashpor that causes effects to occur, which we call, upon seeing these effects, we call the mercy and compassion. See? So when we say rachum, when we refer to God as being compassionate or mercy, what we are really saying is it refers to God as he sends forth a hashpor, which causes the, an, a, an effect of mercy to take place among men. So therefore, we perceive this as mercy or compassion. The name Elohim is the name of God when he issues a hashpor that causes din or justice to occur among men. And the definition of justice is what's called reciprocity of actions. Good for good, evil for evil. That is what justice means. What you do, that's what you get back. It's an exact reciprocity of action. That's what justice means. If you do good, then justice demands that you be paid good. If you do bad, then justice demands that you be paid back in a, in, in a detractive sense. But in any case, the name Elohim, the Shem of Elohim that we call God, Elohim, it means God as he is sending his ashpor that will create the effect of justice or din. Now at this point we can ask a question. Why does God, why does the Rabbanishlam want a different name for every action performed? <clears throat> why does he want a different name for every different hashpor used? Why does he want so many names? Basically, there are three reasons. The first reason <clears throat> is that <clears throat> by the fact that God has a name for every act that he does, this heightens the awareness of God in terms of our understanding or our knowledge of the almost infinite variety of actions performed by him, revealing him to be the cause of everything, literally everything that goes on in creation. In other words, 
The fact that God is called a name by every single thing He does gives us the sense of awareness that God does so many things. So we immediately feel that God is literally the cause of everything that goes on in creation. By the fact He's got a name for everything He does. So we get the sense that God does such an enormous amount of things. Therefore we begin to perceive the real truth that God is the absolute master of all existence. The only one who directs or controls being or existence. Therefore he has a name to heighten our awareness of how intricately he is involved in creation and that he is the only one who is involved in creation. And that creation is a product of an infinite, almost infinite variety of the acts of God. And that we know this by the fact that, or we have heightened awareness of this by the fact that God has so many names or a name for every single ashpah, every single act, every single causative entity which he brings into being. That's the first idea, first reason. <coughs> the second reason is that it enables us to single out a specific hashpah or act which we wish the Rabbanishlam to invoke or issue for our sake or to be used in our service by calling upon God with this name or by requesting through prayer for such a favor or kindness. That's the second reason why God has a name for everything He does. Because what happens if I want to zero in or single out one specific act of God which I want to pray to God that He should use in my service, in my behalf? Then I call Him by that name. So if I want God to be merciful to me, I call Him Rachum because that immediately makes aware to me what I want the to do. So in other words, the, the second reason why God divides His names among all the Hashpahs of creation is that if I want to single out or focus in on a specific attribute or act of God that I want Him to employ in my service, I will pray to God, I will call upon Him in that name. And what that name will do is it will um, sort of like inform God who does not have to be informed but it is my way of being aware and that is what God wants initially uh, actually essentially is that I should be aware what I want and that it is God who only can grant it it is that way where a person can call upon God for God to uh, uh, engage in or to evoke or to issue that specific hashpah that specific act for which this individual is praying for. That is really the nature of prayer. We use the names of God, or rather we use many names of God when we pray. And each time we use the name of God, we are asking Him for a different kind of hashpah. And if you know the different names of God, you will know what you are praying for. That is why prayer is divided among many names of God. Because the prayer consists of calling upon God for many different favors, many different kindnesses. And therefore, we, we, uh, we invoke these hashpos by using the different names of God, which refer to specific hashpos, which designate spe specific hashpos. 
What is important to remember is that when you pray and you use the different name of gods, uh, different names of God to invoke the different hashpos, then the compliance of the Rabbani Shalom to our request is dependent on His will, not on our action. In other words, if God will answer us, will depend on our merits, on our sincerity, on our desire for repentance, on our concentration, and so on. And based on these things, God decides if He wants to answer us or not. <clears throat> but it is still up to Him. Prayer is not an absolute mechanism. It is a very strong mechanism. But it is not absolute that it must achieve its intended purpose. And since I tell you this, I will tell you how prayer can be an absolute mechanism. With, before I get into the third, uh, third reason why God wants different names for different hashpos, and that is the absolute mechanism. <clears throat> there is a Gemara that says that there is an agreement between God and the Jewish people. That if you pray using this formula, God cannot return your prayer unanswered. Now, what that means is not that, not that He will fulfill everything you ask, but you must come back fulfilled in some way. Some aspect of your prayer must be fulfilled. And that is an absolute mechanism. That means if you invoke a certain kind of name of God, then the prayer must return answered. It, or rather, the prayer cannot return unanswered. What is that mechanism? If you pray to God and you say that I ask you <clears throat> or I request of you based on the 13 attributes of goodness or mercy which you possess, in other words, I pray to you based on the Yud Gimumidos, the 13 attributes of kindness which you possess, to fulfill the following request, that is the formula. Then you should know that your tefillah cannot return unanswered. Okay, so that is one way of using prayer as an absolute mechanism to fulfill whatever you want to fulfill. Now, the third reason why the Rabbani Shalom um, employs a different name for every different hashpah, and this is really what relates us to meditative Kabbalah, is that it is possible, based on this idea, it is possible to invoke, it enables us to activate that designated hashpah or that designated act which is connected to or identified by a particular Shem or name if we meditate on that particular Shem. In other words, <clears throat> the meditation which is super-focused awareness without any extraneous mental input on a particular shame or name of God. In other words, if you meditate using this Shem as the object or focus of awareness. Now this is the procedure or the mechanism. If you do that, then this enables us to invoke or to activate or to have issued by God Himself the specific hashpah which is represented by that name 
And this invoked hashpor is used in the service or the direction of the meditator himself. In other words, according to his wishes. That is the third reason why God has a name for every hashpor. If you meditate <coughs> on a name, if the name or that name of God becomes the object of awareness or the focus of awareness, and if you do it under certain conditions, then what happens is that the hashpor, that causative entity, which is represented by that name, is activated or invoked by the Rabbani Shalom to be used in the service of your wishes. That is an absolute mechanism. It must happen.